So he designed, I believe, this, this teaching to expose the hearts of the disciples so that they could see what was in them similar to why Jehovah caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years to show them what was in their hearts. See, in every generation, Father is trying to get people to look within themselves so that he can show them what's in them and how it hinders them from becoming what he has called us to do. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. The connection of Yeshua's coming and teachings to the fulfillment of what was written in the law, the prophets, and the writings concerning him is a vital key to understanding the kingdom of heaven. Answering the questions of the rich young ruler about how to inherit eternal life in the presence of the disciples left Yeshua's disciples perplexed because they had left everything to follow him. Introspectively and verbally, the disciples asked questions concerning the cost they were paying to follow Yeshua when they would see a return and their place in this kingdom Yeshua spoke about. In this portion of Matthew, Yeshua continues to expound on the previous chapter's question asked by his disciples and the closing comment of chapter 19 when he said, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Yeshua shares a parable with his disciples to help them understand and prepare them for the kingdom of heaven he had come to bring. The message title in this podcast, The Kingdom of Heaven is Light. So, let's study. Matthew 19 closes out speaking about the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and so on. And so, as we have talked about in the past, especially those of you who've gone through our discipleship course, you know that the books of the Bible, the writings were not necessarily broken down in chapters and in verses, that this is the work of theologians. And as a result, there are times where a new chapter may begin when actually it's a continuation of the previous passages. When we think about new chapters, we think about the beginning of a context or introducing a new concept. But oftentimes we find that when the theologians decided to divide the book or the writings into chapters and verses, that where they may have cut off may not have necessarily been the right place. And this is why it's so important for us to understand context, because here in Matthew chapter 20 is a continuation from chapter 19. The connection Yeshua's coming and teachings to the fulfillment of what was written in the law, the prophets and the writings concerning him is vital for us to understand the kingdom of heaven. No one understood the kingdom like Yeshua. In fact, we know according to the scriptures that John came to preach about the kingdom saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeshua came to usher in the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven 
the rule and reign of the Most High has always been. Answering the questions of the rich young ruler about how to inherit eternal life in the presence of the disciples left Yeshua's disciples perplexed because they had left everything to follow Yeshua. And this was a question that they posed to him when he told them how hard it was for the rich to enter in. Not that it was impossible, but that it was difficult. I think sometimes we fail to realize that by the standards in their day, that they were pretty well to do. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they were businessmen. They were fishermen. Matthew, a tax collector, was pretty well off. And when Yeshua began to talk about or talk to this individual who came, who seemed to have great substances about what it required for him to inherit eternal life. And Yeshua began to explain that to him. After that explanation, the disciples looked and said, hey, we've left everything. (laughs) You see, because what you just told him and what we're hearing it, at least how we interpret it, what's in it for us? And so he goes on to explain. Now, introspectively or introspectively and verbally, the disciples asked the questions concerning the cost they were paying to follow Yeshua when they would see a return and then their place in this kingdom. And Yeshua is actually going to answer some of that at the end of this particular passage. In this portion of Matthew, Yeshua continues to expound on the previous chapter's question asked by his disciples and closing comment of chapter 19, when he said, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Yeshua shares a parable with his disciples to help them understand and to prepare them for the kingdom of heaven he had come to bring. Now, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are all used interchangeably through the New Testament. And as I stated earlier, the kingdom is so vast and encompasses so many aspects of life. Yeshua uses a variety of teaching methods to help his disciples and others, us, to try and understand what it meant to be a kingdom citizen. Now, traveling in different portions of the world, the mindset of the people adapt to the the world they live in. We have been able to, in our history, determine first worlds, countries, it's like, that's an interesting concept when you talk about third world. It's like, how many worlds are they? Because these people that are being considered to be third world people live in the same world that we live in. But the way they have been defined, And typically, they're defined by economic conditions, a way of life, prosperity, or the lack thereof, the accoutrements, their ability to have specific forms of access, their power grids, their water sources, you know, just how advanced they are in technology. And all of these things define the people and the culture 
in which the people live in. And so when they look at themselves in comparison to other people who live in other countries, they see something different. And the idea of prosperity is the desire of many individuals who decide that they're going to risk their lives to leave the poverty that they're in to go search for what they perceive to be prosperity in another country or in a first world, if they come from a third world, still yet trying to figure out what the second world, because it goes from first to third, but you know what I'm talking about, the concept, because for me to leave where I am to pursue something better causes me to see where I am as not having what I need or what I need or seek or desire. And so we find ourselves, whether we live in a third world country or in a first world country, we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. The kingdom has always existed, but mysteriously hidden from the world until John the Baptist came preaching about it and Yeshua ushered it in and offered it to Israel, which is purportedly the heirs of this kingdom. In all essence, we're all heirs of the kingdom, but father established a process. And this is where genealogy, where he decides the line that he's going to flow through with humankind. He decided a line. When we look back, every one of us in this room, no matter what your geographical lineage your genealogical lineage, your facial structure, your hair texture, your pigmentation, we all find ourselves back to Mr. and Mrs. Adam. Look at your neighbor and say, we cousins, biologically, we family, supernaturally, siblings, absolutely. And so, it is important for Yeshua to speak to his disciples so that they could understand who they are. Not so much who they were to become, although they were to become, but who they are. It saddens me, I have to say it this way, it saddens me when I talk to certain people of certain pigmentation and they want to talk secretly to me like, you know, we really the chosen people. You see, there's a mindset and a mentality that because of how we've been conditioned. And when I say we, I'm talking about the whole world, because every last one of us have been conditioned and the conditioning of the world has caused you to occupy some social structure or some classification based on your heritage. The fact of the matter is that none of us, well, let me put it to you in Jehovah's terms. He is no respecter of person. Now we might be, and this is where we need our minds renewed, but he's not. 
Even when I hear people talk about Israel as the chosen people, does father respect Israel over you? Because if you come to the conclusion that there is a people that is exalted above yourself, then you also must conclude he is a respecter of person. You see, what father did is he chose a line to reveal himself to, to be an example to the world that he may demonstrate who he is through this people so that all people would come in alignment and see him from the same set of lens. Say this with me. The earth is his, the fullness thereof, they, and all that dwell therein. How many of you know you included in the day? We are the day. <laughs> All of us. When we come into relationship with Messiah, that in itself causes us to experience or should to experience the favor of the Most High. So John came to usher this kingdom in or to be the forerunner of the one who would usher it in, mainly Yeshua. The kingdom of God or heaven is the most misunderstood kingdoms of all. The kingdom of God or heaven is visible. And as I stated, can be entered into, but only by supernatural means requiring a supernatural rebirth called being born again. And this is what John talks about in his gospel, the kingdom of God, heaven is greater than all man-made kingdoms combined. If you don't see that, those who have conditioned you will condition you to operate beneath what he desires you and I to operate in. You see, the moment you conform to your world, is a moment the world's conditioning has taken its effect on you and caused you to see others as lesser than. You see, the world want to exalt itself above the knowledge of Jehovah. It has never been as clear as it is right now because people want you and I to follow the science. Let me say that again. People want you and I to follow the science. We have not been, science didn't call us. Yeshua said, if anyone will follow after, then we now must do what? Deny ourselves pick up our execution stake and follow him. You can't follow the science and follow him. You can't serve two masters. You see the science that is trying to get people to follow it is so confused. It don't know whether it's a male or female at times. In fact, it has created and invented itself. 
It denies the creation, and when you follow it, you too come underneath it, which causes you and I won't say I, those who follow it to exalt it above him. See, this is one of the reasons why I believe Paul talked about this whole idea of pulling down strongholds because the conditioning of the world have created strongholds, identity crises within our own selves. Theologically speaking, the kingdom of God is defined as the sovereign rule of God manifesting Messiah to defeat his enemies, creating a people over whom he reigns and issuing in a realm of realms in which the power of his realm is experienced. And that is theologically speaking. <laughs> Theology is always trying to define the almighty. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, it would be very difficult for any of us to get an accurate overall description of who he is. Because in essence, he has not truly revealed himself to the degree that he will reveal himself. I can tell you this, the more you let go of self, the more he will reveal himself. The kingdom does not operate by worldly standards, nor is it governed by man-made rules and laws, but governed by the king of the kingdom. On many occasions, Yeshua explained aspects of the kingdom in order to get his disciples to understand it, to enter into it, operate accordingly, and then ultimately to teach the kingdom gospel to the world. Since I've been on this or let me put it this way. Since I came to Jesus, when I came into the world, just like those of you who were born of a man and woman, you didn't decide which family you come into. You didn't decide what country or nationality. That was not your decision. You were born into it. As a result, Whatever your family practice, whatever denomination, whatever religion, whatever culture. I used to have some weird, weird thoughts, really weird thoughts, because, you know, raised in America. And I, I see people who who have animals and they can kind of interpret their animals speech. And it seems like the animals are trained to interpret their speech. I used to wonder how Chinese dogs differ from American dogs as far as language is concerned. Did the dogs learn Chinese? Because they would instruct their dog, but they weren't instructing their dog in English. So are there dogs with nationalities? My wife says, you know, I don't want to be in your head. And, and sometimes I'll be trying to get out of it. But the fact is, is that I go in places that sometimes to expose 
some of the places I go into in my head, it's like, man, if you told people how you really thought, they would really think you crazy. Well, some of them think I'm crazy anyway. But I would have these thoughts about different countries, different cultures, different ways of communicating and how certain things don't translate and how people grow up and they understand each other. How a child growing up in a country that spoke a different language is no different than, than me growing up in this country speaking a different language. And in essence, it doesn't matter where we come from. We pretty much all alike. And yet the conditioning of our world has created this competitive edge that causes us to compete with people we don't even know and create prejudices, likes, and dislikes, hatred even, of folks we've never met, simply because they're different, was raised different, speak different, look different. And yet, Father is looking at all of us and saying, hey, these are my children, those who believe in Yeshua. It doesn't matter where you came from. If your faith is in him, he calls you his. And if we are his, then whoever, wherever people come from who are his, we're all part of the same family. And yet that goes against the grain of the conditioning of the societies and the countries that we come from. We're going to pick up in this chapter where Yeshua left off in the previous chapter. And I can give up front that this teaching is not designed by me, but designed by Yeshua, I believe, to expose the hearts of the disciples. The sooner we can take the introspect, the sooner we can take the magnifying glass and start examining us, the quicker we begin to identify the areas, especially if we're examining us in light of who he is as revealed by his word. That is one of the most challenging things to do because even from that perspective, there is a religious pride, a cultural pride. So he designed, I believe this, this teaching to expose the hearts of the disciples so that they could see what was in them similar to why Jehovah caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years to show them what was in their hearts. See, in every generation, Father is trying to get people to look within themselves so that he can show them what's in them and how it hinders them from becoming what he has called us to do. All the way in to the first man. The first woman had a simple set of instructions, don't eat from the garden. And yet, in that simple set of instructions, they couldn't keep it or chose not to keep it. They had children. Father goes to one of them and says, Cain, 
if you do what is right, you will be accepted. But you need to know something. Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. You got to master it. I can tell you right here today that he's saying some of the same thing to us. I mean, think about it. You had man and woman. They fell. Their children. There's two of them. Obviously, Abel brings acceptable offerings. And then he becomes persecuted by his brother. And now the man and woman who fell into sin or walk right into it have no children. Or should I say at home? One dead, the other exiled. This cycle from then to now continues to manifest itself among humankind. Father is doing the same thing today as he was then trying to cause his people to master sin. Not to become a masterful sinner, <laughs> but to become a master over. And in order to do that, it requires listening to the instruction. Father said its desire is to have you. You must master it. And instead of mastering it, what did he do? He gave into it. So today, I believe he's trying to get us to see. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, it says, remember how Jehovah, your Elohim led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Did he not know what was in their heart? It was for them to see it. Because you won't repent. You won't humble yourself. You won't allow him to do whatever it is that is in you that he needs to do until you come to the realization that there's something in you that he needs to do. You got to recognize that. You got to realize that. And people can try to tell you People can try to point it out. And, you know, we become masterful of pointing out other people's issues. We fail oftentimes. I was riding in my truck. Simple stuff. Simple, simple, simple stuff. Now, and I, I just had this simple conversation with Arthur. He says, Arthur, you know, you can't get mad at people for doing stuff when you do the same thing. And this has to do with driving. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty aggressive driver. I don't like being behind slow people, people who don't have any place to go. Sometimes, I know I shouldn't. I caught myself at the red light because I'd gotten a text or something, and I'm sitting there reading the thing, and the cars in front of me is way up the road. I'm still at the light. And, and the people behind me, they must have saw this one movie. You know, there's this one movie. I forget what it, the name of it. But there's a famous character in it where he was driving a truck and he stopped at the red light and the woman behind him was really upset and she just laid in on the horn and she shouldn't have done that because from that day on, he followed her. And he said something like, you know, a short beep is a courtesy. Now, he has some issues going on with himself. But the point is, is that that movie taught me not to lay in on the horn because I don't want nobody following me, right? 
So the lady, I don't know if it was a lady or a man. I didn't, I didn't look behind. I didn't look in the rearview mirror, but she gave me a light tap on the horn. And I looked up and, and now I'm feeling foolish. Which is why when I see people like that, you know, I give them a moment to, you know, recognize. And, and, and if they take too long to recognize, I'll give them a little short tap. I don't mind aggressive drivers. I have a problem with non-aggressive drivers. But I also have to realize that I cannot get upset at somebody for doing some of the same stuff I do. That's introspectively. Now, you can get upset all you want. But that's how people get into road rage and all kinds of other stuff, which I try to avoid. In this particular passage, Yeshua says the kingdom of heaven is like. And so it's almost as if he's speaking a parable, even though it's not being referred to as a parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. The word they're like, similar, resembling. So it's a story to tell a story because the whole goal of the story is to expose the hearts of those who believe they deserve something when in actuality they didn't, but it was based on the generosity of the householder, which it appears to be Yeshua is referring to the most high because he's talking about the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is like identifying the householder more than likely as the most high. The householder owned the vineyard, but required laborers to work the vineyard. And the similarity for me, because I'm reading, you know, some of you all know that on the second day of every new moon, we've started a fast so that we would be fasting according to what Yeshua said when he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest is what? Plentiful, but the laborers are few. And in this passage, it seems as if even though the householder hires all these people, there's more work for more people to be hired. And so here, and when he agreed with the laborers, so he, he, he says the kingdom is like this householder. He agreed with the laborers for a penny a day. He sent them into his vineyard. Now, this word penny um, is likened to a denarius, which is a silver coin during the time of Yeshua. And it equated to what historians are say is a day's worth of work. So day labor. Now, some of you all who grow up in countries or in, in cities or towns or in the country where you have farmers who raise crops, you'll know that they have laborers, day laborers that will come, migrant workers in some cases that will come in for a season and work the vineyard or work the crops. So this is a day's worth of wage. And it went out about the third hour. So he goes out in the morning, then he goes out in the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. 
and said unto them, go you also into the vineyard. Now notice what he says. And whatsoever is right, I will give you. Whatsoever is right, I will give you. So he didn't necessarily negotiate a price, but they went on the faith that he's going to pay them right. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, why stand you here all the day idle? And here's what they said, because no man has hired us. And he said unto them, go ye also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right. That shall you receive. Now, first and foremost, the ones who were hired in the morning, they knew that they would get a day's worth of work. The ones who were hired after that, I don't know how this would, but I know that in our society, you either work by the hour or you work from a salary perspective. Verse eight says, so when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire beginning from the last unto the first. Now this problem would have not even been a problem. If he had paid the first first, they would have been gone. Right. Right? But another thing that is exposed here is that payroll is visible. The checks didn't come in a sealed envelope. Everybody got to see what everybody else got paid. (laughs) At the end of the day, the householder will have hired laborers at various times of the day and gathered them together to pay them their wages. Now, in societies today, you have day laborers, laborers who agree to weekly paychecks, annual salaries to be paid biweekly and monthly. And there are people who are on a large spectrum. Torah law required that if you hired a man for the day, you pay him at the end of the day. This is not how everybody got paid, but this specifically refers to somebody who worked in day labor positions. Or if we're going to go to work today, we should get paid today. Based on Leviticus 19.13, it says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired should not abide with thee all night until the morning. Don't tell the man, well, come back tomorrow, I'll pay you. No, you pay him at the end of the day when the job's finished, when the work is done. That day, you pay him. Deuteronomy 24.14, and so Yeshua is using this parable. He's speaking this teaching, but... Those he's speaking to, they understand what? The law. They understand the Torah. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. Remember one of the first topics we looked at when the children of Israel was given the instructions from Jehovah to Moses to instruct the children of Israel. We talked about Hebrew slaves. 
individuals who hired themselves out, who hired their families out. And so he says, when you don't oppress the hired servant that is poor and needed, whether he be your brethren or a stranger. Why? Because there's only one law. You have no right to oppress the non-Hebrew or the Hebrew. At his day, thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it. For he is poor and setteth his heart upon it. Lest he cry against thee unto the Lord and it be sin unto thee. Now, over the course of these last few months, you know, looking at world news and seeing how people are quitting in countries, certain countries, they haven't been paid in weeks, haven't been paid in months. See, all this is against Torah. When a person does a job, they should get paid. And we shouldn't withhold it says, for he is poor and set his heart upon it, lest he cry out against thee unto the Lord. And it be sin to you. What is sin? Violating this law. If you violate this law, it's a sin. What is sin? A violation of the law. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour. Now I know, but man, you know, they knew they hadn't worked but a, a little while. And for them to get the same amount, <laughs> they received every man a penny. They got the same amount of money as the person who had been working there all day. Now, I can imagine they said, we don't deserve this, but probably kept their mouth shut. Again, there's that penny again, which is the denarius. So everyone got paid in front of the others so that the ones who came first saw what the ones who came last got paid. But when the first came, they supposed, they supposed that they should have received more. Why? Because the people who had worked less got the same pay that was negotiated with them. Now, I've had situations, and I'm going to tell you something. It's a terrible thing. When we were doing the construction of this building, when we purchased the building and we began the process of, of construction, the contractor said to us, says, now, here are the fixed costs, but there needs to be a certain amount added to the cost for unforeseen. You remember what, the, what was the term they called that? Well, I know it was 10%, but they had a specific term. Incidental contingencies, incidentals, well, not incidentals, contingencies. In other words, the price could go up and it's beyond our control. We may be knocking out a wall or digging in the floor and we come across something that we didn't anticipate. There are problems that occur. And this was a certain percentage over the whole project. Every time I've been or have had any form of contract or um, contractual agreement where, you know, work is being provided, then there's always the possibility that something that you didn't plan for, didn't see happens. In fact, yeah, it's almost like always especially if you're renovating an old house, which is why, you know, even when you build, 
Now you got to watch over folks to make sure that they're putting things where you told them to put it <laughs> and not taking shortcuts. But the point is something that really bugs me is when you've negotiated a price, a cost, and whoever you negotiated with decided at some point that they want to renegotiate. Now, nothing's changed, but for some reason, maybe they undervalued. I don't know. But if you have an agreement, then stick to the agreement, complete the agreement. And if there's a new agreement at some other time, you want to make sure that you got your numbers right. The householder said, here's the amount of money I'm going to pay you. Have anybody ever worked a job and you felt at some point maybe you deserved more? Then what do you do? You ask for a raise or you say, hey, you know, I need to look for a job that's going to pay me more. And next thing you know, you find another job or whatever the case may be. But when there's an agreement, it's honorable to stick to the terms of the agreement until the terms of the agreement has been satisfied or fulfilled. And when they had received it, they start murmuring against the goodman of the house. Now, obviously, this murmuring was loud enough for the goodman of the house to hear it or to know about it, saying, these last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. So they murmured, but the goodman household or the householder heard what was being said and spoke to one of them who may have murmured. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Did not we agree? You agreed with me for a penny, right? Take that which is thine and go your way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. And notice what he says here. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I'm good? Are you having an issue with me because I showed goodness to someone else? Every aspect of our lives are governed by law. We need to get this in our psyche, in our spirit, in our mind, in our understanding. When I was in a harbor and whenever I'm, I've been invited into ministries that are transitioning, when I have been invited into churches, I know why I don't get invited to a lot of churches because we have a track record on the internet. Anybody who wants to know about Arthur Bailey, they Google Arthur Bailey, Arthur Bailey Ministries come up, they watch a few minutes of our teaching and it's like, nope, wrong guy. He's not the one. We need somebody who is a little more kinder, gentle, friendlier to our plight. <laughs> and so you've got people out there who know how to walk into a Christian church and make Christian church people feel good. Yet I remember the first time I heard a so-called rabbi talk about in a church in Detroit 
where he spoke to the pastor and said, it's nice to be invited here on your Sabbath. It was Sunday. The acknowledgement that the Sunday day of worship was their Sabbath. And basically folks felt pretty good about that. And to this day, that church still has Sunday worship. In fact, the rabbi gave them a Torah scroll that ended up in the closet. Serious business here, folks. They tried a, a Sabbath service shut down. Why? Because he, I know that spirit. I encountered that spirit in our own ministry, which is why I eliminated Sunday. There are people who are going to hold on to Sunday for dear life, and they're going to hold on to Jesus for dear life. And ain't nobody going to change them. And so I knew when I eliminated Sunday service, I was cutting that portion of the church off. I had no choice. At least I felt that their time had come. Their, their grace had ran out. You can tiptoe through the tulips, dilly-dally. You can do whatever it is you want. But until you confront those issues head on, people will be able to sidestep them and continue to do whatever it is they're doing. And do you know, you'll do the same thing. Until you are confronted head on. And the only person that can confront you to the degree that will bring about change in your life is you. Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, the police, the judge, the doctor, the surgeon, the prison warden. Because until you confront you, We've created these habits within us that have become who we are. And until you confront you, you will not change. You'll make some adjustments. You'll appease some people here and there, but you will not make the kind of change that the almighty is trying to get us to make to where we now conform or be transformed into the image of his son, Yeshua. And so, you know, we had to confront that. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because there are people who will label you as a legalist. That's what they'll call you. Most people who call you a legalist don't even know what a legalist is. Because if they knew what a legalist is, the moment they call you a legalist, they become a legalist. That's just the reality. People operate their lives based on self-imposed laws or rules. Every person in this room have laws that you use to govern yourself by that you won't find in the Bible. You eat at a certain time. You eat at certain places. You've got habits and practices. You have boundaries in space. And anybody who crosses their space will feel the wrath of your judgment and the condemnation as you execute that judgment, every last one of us operate by a set of rules, laws, whether they be self-imposed laws or rules, which we operate, 
And as I said, legalist and legalism are legal terms. Those are legal terms by definition. What legal standard are you using to call someone a legalist? Because they're operating by a set of laws and you operate by a different set of laws? Because you have laws that you operate by that they don't operate by and therefore you call them a legalist while re- being a legalist. That's why you got to change the script. Folks said, you know, you're all a part of a cult. I said, well, we, at least we know we in a cult. Most people don't know. We have a cult leader. His name is Yeshua. That's what they called him. So don't let people intimidate you by words. Ask him, well, define legalist. Tell me what that is and watch him stutter. Define cult and watch them stutter. Because if you ask them to define what they're calling you, they'll have no choice in their definition but to see themselves. As long as they can use words and get away with using the words without being challenged to define those words, they will never identify themselves in the word. And what you have is that you're pointing at me, but you're pointing at yourself at the same time. At least I know. I don't run from it anymore. I embrace it. Just like age. <laughs> I, don't, I don't run from it. It's like, hey, bring it on. Man, I get the senior citizen discount. I start going for mine at 60, trying to get it at 59. Yeah, I got my social security. It's stacking up gaining interest. Well, some folks, well, I'm going to wait. Mm-hmm. You go ahead on. You wait. That's your business. But as for me, I won't mind right now. There's laws of creation. There's laws of nature. When I look at creation, you know, we have rabbits in our yard. We have bees and, and wasps and mice and spiders and snakes and coons and possums and deer running across every now and then. We got all that stuff going on. And here's my rule. If I walk by a spider web in my yard, I leave it alone. Now, if the spider web crosses the sidewalk that impedes my flow, then I'll remove a strain and try to set it over without damaging the spider. Because why? The spider is part of his creation that's got a job to do. The roaches, as long as y'all stay outside, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to step on you. I'm not going to mess with the ants. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm I'm trying not to spook the rabbits because, you know, these little jokers, they'll sit there like you don't see them. (laughs) I just try not to, even snakes and other types of, and I just watch it. And I see the splendor of the Almighty and how he designed things, and everything has its place. He says, I watch over the sparrows. Look at the lilies. Go to the ant, you sluggard. He uses these creatures, critters, insects, stuff to teach us. We're the only 
part of nature that don't seem to understand we're animals. We're just human. You know, when an animal operate outside of what is expected, it is required to put them down. Why? Because the moment they operate outside, there's been some form of influence that is causing them to become something that is against their nature. Our nature is fallen. We were born fallen. And unless there's some serious supernatural intervention, we will continue to operate in a fallen state or mix. You'll mix your religion, your denomination, your knowledge of scripture with your nature and create some kind of mutant religion. You'll establish your religious standards by which you'll judge everybody else by. And there's really only one standard and really one judge when it comes down to judging according to the standards. There are man-made laws and rules that govern our society. We're supposed to be a nation of laws, but people who got a lot of money think that the laws weren't made for them because they can buy lawyers and judges and politicians. No one is above the law. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's the laws of God, and here's the most important, because the law of the Almighty is the one that many of his human creations believe they don't have to operate in while subjecting and submitting themselves to the man-made laws, rules, and regulations. Scripture tells us in Isaiah, for Jehovah is our judge. Jehovah is our lawgiver. Jehovah is our king. He will save us. The president can't save you. The vice president, Republicans, Democrats, they can't save us. They can make laws to try to govern us, but then at the same time have different laws that govern them. James says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? When a person calls you a legalist, you know what they've done? They've passed judgment on you and then tell you not to judge. It's like, you know, you speak like the natives used to say with forked tongue. Matthew 20, 16. So the last shall be first and the first last for many be called, but few chosen. Now, you notice this verse in Matthew 20, 16 is similar to verse 30 in Matthew 19. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so he goes into continuing answering the question that he laid the opening to in the previous chapter speaks a parable, but what he's really doing is he's challenging them to examine them, their own heart because what he's saying is that, listen guys, because remember prior to this, they had this conversation amongst themselves as to who was the greatest who's the greatest among us. I can tell you that I remember a time in my life and I didn't fully understand it then, but when I look back, I made a conscious decision 
when I came into the church, I was working at Steelcase in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, I was just like a lot of other employees. But my journey is I came out of the military. I moved to Vegas. Things didn't go the way they planned. I ended up in Michigan, Grand Rapids, to be specific. And in Grand Rapids, I ended up in a job working with my brother. And I was thankful they didn't share the profits. They didn't, you know, you you had a, a paycheck. This is what you got paid. But then when I developed this relationship with a neighbor who for some reason liked me and used his influence as an employee of what was a family owned company and business that, you know, you can sponsor people. And, you know, his son had gone off to college and had become something. And so he had this sponsorship. And so he sponsored me. And the thing that I'm, I'm speaking of is that when he sponsored me, I was so excited when I got my first profit sharing check. Now, the people, when I went to work there, you know, because I'm productive, I'm highly productive, and I started producing, and the people would complain to me, say, hey, you need to slow your pace. You need to pace this thing out. And so what happened is that the influence of the folks around me over time began to wear on me, and I started conforming to my environment. My lunch break is a little longer. My breaks gets extended. I start doing the things that the people were doing. And I remember even start getting high on, on lunch. You know, some folks, they go out to lunch, drink a beer, come back to work, get them through the day, smoke a joint. That became me. <laughs> And I'm looking at all this and I knew, I knew within my heart that I wasn't producing the way I knew. And I had to literally slow myself down and become what folks around me were like in order to fit in. When father got a hold of me and this is, this is in church and I start reading my Bible. I did something. I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to the president of the company, Jim uh, Hackett. He later left Steelcase and became the CEO of Ford. But I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter and I said, first of all, I want to apologize for not being the model employee I know I can be. From this day forward, I will not be missing any more time. I will be to work on time. I will not be taking advantage of resources, lying on my timesheet or any of that. I don't even know if the letter got to the man. All I know is that it was in my heart to write that letter and I sent it to him. From that moment forward, based on what scripture was telling me, I wanted to become, and at that point from year after year after year, I was getting perfect attendance. When I left the company, I started a nonprofit. I wrote Steelcase, applied for a grant, 
The same Jim Hackett, the CEO of the company, became a part of my nonprofit board of directors in the sense that now he's bringing all of these other people in. I get the foundation grant and then we start building and expanding. And next thing you know, he's got me connected with folks in different states. But I believe it all started from that letter. Favor began to, to follow me. And the point is, is that I believe father inspired me to do that. And that's when I first start seeing the favor of the most high by simply doing what he was putting in my heart to do. I don't know why I digressed on that, but I think it was, it was important. Cause as I'm looking at this Matthew 20, the last shall be first. The first shall be last. Many be called, but few be chosen. It doesn't matter what the people around you do. What's important is that you do what he's calling you to do. That you be. Because I allowed the people around me to influence me. I shouldn't have done that. I remember when I was in the church and I'm looking and I'm listening and I'm, you know, I'm, the, the counsel, the advice that is coming from godly people was ungodly. People counseling me out of their flesh, counseling me out of their emotions, not according to the word. And when I bring up the word, making excuses for the word. And I come to realize that there are many people who have this book, but they don't live according to the book. They've got their own created religion that is based on the book and operate accordingly when it's beneficial and suitable to them. Father doesn't operate like that. His favor comes when we obey his instructions, obey him communicating with us, sharing with us, telling us what it is that he expects of us because now in order to do that and this, now I remember I had to confront what I had allowed the world around me to make me or that I conformed to, I had to confront that person. And then I put that person on notice by writing that very public letter and sending it out. So I can't go back on what I, what I'm saying because now it's public. Now I don't know if he watched me, but here's the thing I do know to this day, if I call Jim Hackett up on the phone, he know who I am. And it's not just him. There's several people, which is why people would, they thought I lost my mind when I moved to Charlotte. Why would you leave? There were people envious of who I was and what we were doing and what we had become to walk away from that. But see, father had taught me from the very day that he told me to step down from the Baptist church. He says, you've gotten what you've, what you're supposed to get here, it's time to go. So I'm, I'm leaving the robes and the communion and the reverend and the, you know, all of the accolades that come along with leadership and going to another ministry and starting from scratch all over again. And then when he says, it's time for you to step down here. So he had showed me how to leave 
I've never left any place that I didn't tell the people that I was leaving that I was leaving. I didn't just disappear. One day you look for me and I'm gone. No, I didn't come like that. I don't leave like that. And so when he says it's time to step down, it's time to go to the leadership, says, hey, my time has expired. It's been wonderful or whatever, but, you know, I will be leaving. The same thing with Steelcase. I tendered a resignation. Folks thought I was crazy then. You're leaving this good job to go into the church to work in the nonprofit arena? How can you be doing? You're leaving these benefits? Well, it's not about the benefits because where I'm going is based on who is leading me and what he has for me must be better than what I have. And that's the idea that we have to gather, that we have to come to when we talk about following him. It's not, I'm not leaving nothing. Just like the disciples, we've left everything. Now, I didn't know this passage. I didn't know these passages at that time. Not the way I know them now. See, you can't leave anything for his sake that he will not not only restore and sometimes even greater than what it was, but you get it on both sides. His goodness while you were alive and eternal life when you make the transition. It is often said by Gentile Christians that the Jews killed Jesus. However, Yeshua speaks about his death in this passage and who the players were that would be involved in his execution. Verse 17, and Yeshua coming, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the who Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. And so these are the closing verses. And I just simply wanted to, to deal with that particular uh, question because, you know, for a long time, and this is one of the ways anti-Semitism as it is known today, where people have a hatred for certain people based on some of the stuff that they've been taught and some of that stuff they've been taught in church. Like the Jews killed Jesus. Well, Yeshua tells us who the players are. One, the betrayer we know to be Judas. He's the one who betrayed Yeshua. The orchestrator of the betrayal, the Bible tells us, the chief priests and the scribes. They're the ones who negotiated with Judas with that 30 pieces of silver. And then the executors, the mockers, the scourgers, the crucifiers. They were the Romans, the Gentiles that Yeshua speaks about. But here is the designer of the plan. And this is the focus, brothers and sisters, because nobody could take the life of the Messiah. It was designed from the foundation of the world. Jehovah took pleasure in having him go through what he went through because he knew the outcome. And he will take pleasure in you going through what you're going through because he knows the outcome unless you stop. As I've said to people, if you're going through hell, don't stop. Keep it moving because eventually you will get through it. 
And everything he's bringing you through, brothers and sisters, is preparing you for the next storm because the next storm is coming. I guarantee it. You will go through a series of storms in life. You will be challenged at your very core to throw in the towel, to roll over and play dead, to give up, to quit. Father is making you, working you, challenging you, strengthening you, growing you, perfecting you. And all you have to do is continue the journey. I can't see it. You know why you can't see it? Because you're walking by sight. This is not a sight walk, brothers and sisters. This is a walk of faith, and that faith requires trusting the one who started this journey. You didn't start this journey. I was thinking this morning, I didn't call me. I didn't ask to be called. I didn't want to be called. And yet I am. And it, it appears it appears that my calling costed me my wife, costed me my children, costed me my siblings. It's costing me pretty much all of the things that I treasure. And I have to, I have to trust. I have to believe. I have to believe that it's not in vain even though I can't see it right now. It don't look like it right now. I have to trust. I have to believe. That's all I got. If I didn't have that, I would quit. That's all we got. I have to trust that the one who called me is going to keep his promises to me. I declare the promises. I declare those promises. Every day, I declare those promises. I look up, don't look like they're happening. This Thursday, on the eighth day, I'm going to be teaching. And um, I find sometimes I feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. That's how I feel. I feel that, that I'm teaching and preaching and pressing and confronting, whereas people have their minds made up, they have their path that they have decided they're going to walk on, they have embraced their mixture, they've decided how they're going to serve the Most High. You're preaching and teaching and showing traditions and seeing how things have creeped in and it's causing individuals to be somewhat irrelevant in their walk, powerless in their walk. And yet they continue to do the same old thing and to preach and to teach and not necessarily see the kinds of change or to see the kinds of growth or to see the kinds of things that people will tell me or try to tell me that I should be seeing and not seeing those things. I have to trust that I'm not fighting a losing battle, that I'm not wasting my time, that I'm not preaching to deaf ears, stiff neck hearts. There will be some deaf ears and some stiff neck hearts and some folks whose minds are not going to be changed. But they're those 
they're those. And that's why your testimonies become so important. It's not that I need to hear them, but it inspires me when I do. Because whether you testified or not, I can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. The only thing I can do is forge ahead and trust and believe that we, that I'm not alone in this. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, it so much feel like it. Especially when you don't see the people that you love, cherish, and treasure the most operating in, you know, what you feel they should be. But Father sees. He knows the end from the beginning. And all we can do is trust Him in the process. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.